Um, you're going to have to bear with me this morning. Uh, last Sunday, finished preaching twice and came down, and literally my voice was gone. And so uh, it's still kind of in and out. Uh, a few people have said, well, Andrew, have you tried not yelling so much? <laughs> I'm like, do you know how hard that is for me? <laughs> so uh, we'll do, I'll do my best. <clears throat> uh, but why don't you grab a Bible, and uh, you can turn to the book of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 1. Uh, this morning, this is week two of our um, Christmas series, our Advent series uh, called A Simple Christmas. And really what we've been wanting to do is look at the humble story of Jesus' birth. And we talked about it uh, last week that lots of times, I mean, this, this season, it is the most wonderful time of the year, right? But sometimes we overcomplicate this season, whether it's with busyness or with gifts or family, all these things, it's just unnecessarily overcomplicated. And so we wanted to just look at this simple, humble Christmas narrative uh, of Jesus coming. And so last week we unpacked the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, this list of names leading up to uh, Joseph, who was not Jesus' biological father, but legally in that day and age, he was um, Jesus' legal father. So we looked at this list of names in, in Jesus' family tree and, and just really questionable characters. Um, there were prostitutes and murderers and adulterers and child sacrificers, um, all the way up to Joseph leading to Jesus. And, and, and basically what it showed us is, man, oh man, humanity needs a Savior. We are just stuck in this cycle of endless sin and, and brokenness. So that was last week. Um, I want you to think about, for a, a moment, some of your favorite <clears throat> um, stories or, or books that you read growing up. Um, many of you know that uh, my favorite book, uh, besides the Bible, is the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit and all that stuff that Tolkien wrote. Um, love those books, love <clears throat> that story, but when you think about it, who are the main heroes of this epic quest to defeat evil and darkness? They're hobbits. Uh, and if you read Tolkien, uh, he describes hobbits in a couple of different ways. They're somewhere between two and four feet tall, right? He says they're round, fat in the stomach, and short in the leg. So pudgy little creatures. They have big hairy, leathery feet, <clears throat> and they're shy, quiet, and peaceful. And you go, okay, you're writing this epic quest to destroy the powers of darkness, and that's your hero? <laughs> like the most, uh, this is who's going to save Middle Earth, right? <clears throat> and often throughout the books and the movies, if you've read them or watched them, sometimes, actually most of the time, the hobbits seem more interested in when their next meal is rather than the imminent danger that is facing them, right? We joke about second breakfast, if you know what I'm talking about. They're like, yeah, we've already had breakfast, but when's second breakfast? And they're like, do you realize that evil is trying to destroy you? And it just seems like the most unassuming person to choose to be your hero of this story. And I know that there's other heroes, but the main heroes that end up winning the day are these tiny little creatures, not whom you would assume, and I think that's one of the reasons that Lord of the Rings is so fascinating because Tolkien took 
these little unassuming creatures and made them the heroes of the story. Now, I, I know it's just an analogy, it's a stretch, but the Christmas narrative is, is quite similar. And you're, and don't be like, Pastor Andrew said, Jesus is a hobbit. That's not what I said, okay? <clears throat> but there's similarities in the Christmas narrative because if you would go, okay, let's write a story about the Savior of the world the king of the universe coming to vanquish darkness and evil, you would probably not pick detail. I mean, think about last week, the genealogy. Let's clean that up a little bit, right? Or, or you just, as we read these details of the Christmas narratives, it's just so unassuming, this great savior of the world, really the greatest savior ever. And this is not a made-up story. This is reality. It happened Jesus, the greatest savior on the greatest rescue mission ever, you, you, you read it and it's just so unassuming and it's so backwards to what we would have picked. And so in our passage today, we're going to see that a little bit. We're going to see the angel Gabriel, uh, he's going to come to Mary and announce the coming of Jesus and the fact that Mary has been picked by God to participate in the coming of Jesus. So if your Bibles are open, Luke 1, uh, and we'll just kind of work our way through this passage verse by verse. So starting in verse 26, it says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So we have to stop here because there's, in two verses, there's so much cultural background stuff going on that we we have to unpack this a a little bit. So Gabriel is one of God's angels. He's a messenger. He's sent by God. And we're told specifically to where? To a city uh, called Nazareth in an area called Galilee. Uh, and, And so for us, we might just hear that and go, okay, So those are just names of cities and places. But there's a lot behind the scenes that we need to understand. So Galilee is a region in Israel. If you think of Jerusalem and Judah, and then there's Samaria that separates them, and then Galilee is just above Samaria. And in order to get from Galilee to go down to Jerusalem, you had to go either through Samaria, which if you know about the Samaritans, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews, So you had to go through Samaria or you had to go the long way around all the way to get to to Jerusalem. So Galilee is kind of separated and and up north. Um, This was an area that was surrounded by Gentiles on, on the rest of the borders of Galilee. And it was kind of seen in Israel, Galilee was seen as a backwater, podunk, redneck part of Israel. So Fort St. John is the Galilee, like it's the Galilee, right? That's what we are. <laughs> it's like, it, that, honestly, in, in history books, people looked at Galilee as they are uneducated. They don't know what they're doing. They're just so weird up in Galilee. That was um, <clears throat> the, the view of the day. The Galileans had a different accent than the rest of the Israelites. I don't know if you were aware of that. That's why Peter, in one of the Gospels, when they're asking Peter at the, the, the trial of Jesus, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? In one of the Gospels, they say, you sound like him. Meaning, they had a, the Galileans had a distinct accent that gave them away. You're from Galilee, aren't you? <laughs> right? So imagine, so it's Fort St. John with a Newfie accent. 
that's Galilee, right? It was just kind of like, we, we can tell that you're from up north. You're Galilee, you have a weird accent. Um, if you read other history books, um, Galileans, they had a reputation of being very lax on keeping kosher rules. So all the rules uh, about your um, food and your kitchen and how you prepped food to make sure that it was clean versus unclean. Galileans were notorious for being very relaxed on that. Yeah, whatever. Um, They also had a reputation of being very quarrelsome and combative. And if you think about it, this makes sense. 11 of the 12 disciples were from Galilee. So you think about Peter, you think about James and John, what did Jesus nickname James and John? The sons of thunder. And you remember when the Samaritan village rejected Jesus and James and John were like, hey, Jesus, you want us to call down heaven and just, or call down fire and destroy them? And Jesus was like, boys, boys, they're Galileans, right? They had that kind of reputation. And so this is where the angel comes. Um, even in John 7, 41, uh, people were talking about Jesus and it says, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Like that was the attitude of the day. Really? The Messiah comes from Galilee? Um, John seven fifty two, when Nicodemus is uh, kind of defending Jesus a little bit, he's going, wait, we should give him a trial before we just judge him. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Right? Are you one of them? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Even in the book of Acts, when Peter and the others are standing up and they're preaching in tongues and languages that people can hear, people are amazed and they go, are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So that was the mindset of Galilee. Now, Nazareth is a city in the region of Galilee. And it was a small town of roughly, historians think, somewhere between 1,600 and 2,000 people. Uh, so Tumbler Ridge size, if you wanted to compare, right? I think the Tumbler Ridge population is 1,900 people. So roughly that size of town. And it was off of the main trade routes. And it was just viewed as, Nazareth is just relatively insignificant. And it was actually <clears throat> looked down on as a town as well. If you remember, John 1, it says this, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that was the view. Galilee is bad enough, but Nazareth? And so Gabriel is sent by God to a town called Nazareth, Nazareth in a region called Galilee, not to Jerusalem, which we, most of us would assume Like, go to the capital. Go to the religious epicenter of all of Israel. Go to Jerusalem. But Gabriel goes to this backwater, no-place town. And then we're told that Gabriel is sent to a virgin named Mary, who's betrothed to a guy named Joseph. Now, we have to understand a little bit about betrothal. Because it's different than in our day and age how we get engaged and and we do things. Um, Betrothal was uh, you were pledged to be married. And it was a formal agreement initiated by the father who was seeking a wife for his son. And so the father, which I like this because I have two girls. I like this idea. So the father would go and he would pay a bride price. This is how they did in, in, in those days. They would pay a bride price to the bride's father And then they would enter into this written agreement 
And there was an oath that was signed by the son specifically. And that meant that now this boy and this girl, they're engaged. They're betrothed to be married. And it was seen as legally binding. Um, you, in, in their mind, you were legally married. There was just no sexual contact until the wedding. And so in our day and age, it would be, it would be like, okay, we're going to get engaged. Let's go to the courthouse. Let's sign our marriage license. Boom. We're legally married, but now we're not going to live together and we're not going to sleep together until we have the wedding ceremony and then we will become husband and wife. Engagement in their culture could not be broken off except by getting a divorce. You were actually considered husband and wife already. You just weren't living together and you weren't sleeping together. Now, the normal age for betrothal for girls was anywhere between 13 and 15 years old. So again, put these pieces together to understand how scandalous and how unassuming this is. God sends a messenger that we're going to announce. Here's the plan to save mankind. I want you to go to Galilee, which everyone made fun of Galileans. I want you to go to Nazareth, which everyone looked down on Nazareth. And I want you to go to a 13-year-old virgin girl who's betrothed to be married. This is who God picks. It's, it's quite amazing. Go to a 13-year-old virgin in a looked-down-on city, in a looked-down-on region in Israel. So here's what happens then, verse 28. And he, this is Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So here's the, the message that Gabriel's sent to give. He comes to Mary, and he says, Mary, you are going to conceive and bear a son, <clears throat> and you are to name him Jesus. Now, some people have suggested that since the angel says to Mary, or, or rather calls her, O favored one, and then uh, says uh, in verse uh, 30, don't be afraid, you have found favor with God. Many people assume that that means that Mary was chosen by God because she was somehow extra special and extra holy, pure, righteous. Somehow Mary was chosen because she was less sinful than other people. I mean, the Catholic Church teaches this, that she was sinless. And unfortunately, that's just, this is not true. Mary is called the favored one, and she is told that she found favor with God solely because God chose to show her favor. It's because God graciously chose her. That's why she's the favored one, right? Mary wasn't picked because she possessed a particular piety or holiness, what we have here is the emphasis is on God's sovereign choice of someone, not on Mary's acceptability for, for the job. If that was the case, like if God had to find someone who was favorable and holy and righteous and, quote, good enough to bear Jesus, it's not like he looked down from his throne and said, okay, who am I going to choose? They have to be really, really good and holy and righteous and perfect. If that was the case, Jesus would have never come because there's nobody like that. In all of humanity, no one is good enough to bear Jesus. And so the fact that Mary is favored, it's because God showed her unmerited favor. And I mean, look at Mary's response to this interaction. 
The angel says, greetings, O favored one. In verse 29, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Um, the word troubled means actually uh, agitated, which is interesting that Mary would be agitated at what the, the angel, it means that you're alarmed, that you're disturbed at what was said to you. And then the word discern, it just means to, to ponder, and it's the idea of an internal debate going on in your mind. Actually, uh, sometimes it's used as a bookkeeping term in the Greek language. It means to make an audit, right? So Mary is told, hey, greetings, favored one, the Lord's with you, and she's disturbed and troubled about this greeting, and she's making an internal audit in her mind. Okay, what does this mean? I got to figure this out. I have to discern why this angel is coming to me. And so she's adding things up. She's weighing. She's pondering what is it's a very rational response. And I mean, wouldn't you do the same? An angel just told a 13-year-old girl who's never had sex with a man, you're going to be pregnant. So it, yeah, you would be troubled and disturbed and go, wait a second, how is this? And trying to figure out what this angel is talking about. So the angel then, Gabriel goes on in verse 31 or rather, verse 32, describing Jesus, right, Mary? You're going to have a son, name him Jesus, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So you get the sense, okay, this is not just a regular child that's being born, and the angel tells Mary five things about who this child will be. Number one, he'll be great. Uh, and that's meant to be as compared to the rest of humanity, which is not great. I mean, remember last week, the genealogy, just a list of names of just brokenness and sin and evil and depravity. But this child that's coming, he will be great. Secondly, he'll be the son of the Most High. Literally, this means he will be God's own son. This child will be divine. He's not just a regular human. There's divinity with him. Thirdly, God will give him the throne of David. Um, and this, this uh, and we looked at it a little bit in the genealogy, why this was so important, that, that Jesus came from the line of David. He's going to inherit this throne, this, this Davidic line, this great king. I mean, this is talked about in 2 Samuel 7. <clears throat> um, God speaking to David says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Uh, fourthly, this child will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And this was a way to describe the nation of Israel. The house of Jacob was often a term to describe the, the Israelites. And so Jesus, this child coming, he's going to reign over his people forever. And then fifthly, his kingdom will never end. So it's not going to be, okay, a great king that comes and he reigns for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Nope. His kingdom is eternal. It's going to last forever. Because even think about it. The Israelites had seen decently good kings, 
right? Josiah, remember, he came, and even as a young king, he reigned for, for quite a while in goodness and in righteousness, but, th- but this baby's different. His kingdom is never-ending. It lasts forever. It's not just a, a solid, good 40-year kingdom. It's forever. So, I mean, we're, we're meant to feel the weight of this. Not only is this going to be a miraculous birth, but there's something different about this child that's born. Listen, the world had seen other miraculous births. Now, not a virgin birth, but the world had seen other miraculous births that were clearly the hand of God moving. Abraham and Sarah were, were infertile, unable to have children, and God miraculously gave them a son. Samson's parents, if you read in, in the book of Judges, Samson's parents, same, could not conceive, were infertile. God came and said, I'm going to make you pregnant, and your son is going to be Samson. Zachariah and Elizabeth, literally just in the, the verses before Zechariah and Elizabeth, barren, unable to have children, and God comes and says, I'm going to give you a child, and that's going to be who? John the Baptist. So it's not, it's not as if the world had never seen some kind of miraculous birth, but this is, so, this is on a, a playing field all on its own. I mean, one, it's a virgin birth, which the world had never seen before, and not only this, but the one born is unlike anyone. No one has ever been described like this. When God came to Abraham and Sarah or Samson's parents or Zechariah and Elizabeth, they didn't say, hey, this, the miraculous child that we're giving you is going to have a kingdom that never ends. No, no one has been described like this. Jesus stands alone as this is the most important birth that has ever happened. So now look at how Mary responds. Imagine being 13 years old and hearing all of this. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary responds very rationally. Uh, it's, not, it's not presented as being doubtful, but Mary is curious, and it's a good question. How, how is this going to happen since I'm a virgin? I mean, that's a, that is a legitimate question. <laughs> Notice that she's not, she's not doubting what God can do, but she's just wanting to know, okay, how could this possibly happen? And the angel responds, basically saying, this is going to be a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. This is going to be done by God's power. And then the angel gives an example. He says, even Elizabeth, Mary, your relative, is pregnant too, and she was called barren. So miracles happen, Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. And so in, in verse 38, Mary's resolve, her, her, her response to this is, uh, it's amazing. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
Like notice where she got, right? She starts by being troubled, agitated, worried, um, trying to figure out what this means, asking questions. She's given a bit of information and then she ends by going, I'm God's servant. Let it happen to me just like you said. Think about that, as, you know, as I say that rather glibly, think about the consequences to Mary of her surrender to God. She would have been seen as a loose woman. Um, at the worst, she would have been labeled an adulterer. And at the best, well, her and Joseph were sleeping together before they got married. Um, Jesus would have been viewed as an illegitimate child, um, which there's evidence in the Gospels that people uh, knew that and poked fun at him a little bit. We don't even know who your father is, Jesus. She would have experienced most likely loneliness, misunderstanding, judgment. So, I mean, the implications of her saying this are massive, and yet she says, I'm a servant of God. Let it happen to me. So I think you and I can learn a few things from Mary's response to this incredible news of Jesus coming into the world. And I think actually it sheds light a little bit on how you and I respond to God's calling in our own lives. So firstly, it's okay for you to ponder and discern the things of God. (coughs) Excuse me. Notice that the first thing we see is that the the angel comes to Mary and says, greetings, O favored one, you know, you're going to conceive, and this is amazing thing. Notice that Mary doesn't automatically go, woohoo, sweet, awesome, sounds great. No, her first response is, I'm going to make a mental audit of what you just told me, and I'm going to weigh it, and I'm going to balance it, and I'm going to discern and figure out what this actually means. She was troubled. She tried to discern. She asked questions about it. So I think that's a great example to you and me. Following Jesus, being called by God, is not just blind faith. Just check your logic, check your reason at the door, just believe. It doesn't matter. Don't try and figure it out. Just believe it. It's okay. It's actually encouraged for us as believers to question, to ponder, to to be troubled by things, to weigh them out, to make audits, and to try and and figure things out. Um, Several years ago, I had a a young man come into my office, and he uh, wasn't a believer, and had grown up in the Catholic Church, and he had been here for a few Sundays and asked to meet with me, and that happens from time to time, just wanting to ask questions or whatever. Uh, And in our discussion, uh, he told me the story that uh, when he was a teen, he went to the priest at the Catholic Church and he uh, wanted to ask questions about the Trinity. Like, how is it that God is three in one? How is he Father, Son, and Spirit? How is Jesus fully God trying to weigh it out? And he told me that the priest's response to him is, you're not supposed to ask questions. Just believe. Listen, we can't figure it out. Just believe. God is the Trinity. Don't ask questions. And so he left, and he left the church for like a decade because he went, if that's true, well, then I don't want anything to do with this. So I remember he, he asked me, like, can I ask you to explain the Trinity? I was like, sure, I'll try. But, I mean, I don't have it all figured out, but I, it's so okay to ask questions and to wrestle with things of the faith. I love that Mary 
she gets to a place of surrender, but not right away. Like, it's okay to wrestle with this stuff, to use reason and logic, but I want you to also notice that Mary came to a place where she still had to believe by faith and surrender. The angel didn't tell her all of the details. Basically, the angel said, the Holy Spirit's going to do this. It's going to be a miracle. Nothing's impossible with God. And Mary, given uh, sufficient information to kind of satisfy her wonderings and her ponderings, she still had to take a step of faith. It wasn't all reasoned out for her. And so she still said, okay, I am the servant of God. I'm going to surrender. So there is, listen, don't, don't swing too far the other way. Well, we, we can explain away everything in the faith. No, but you use reason and logic to get to a certain point where you ask questions and you ponder and you think and you, and you wrestle with it. But every one of us has to get to that place where we go, I know enough and now I'm going to take that step of faith to believe. But it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to wrestle with it. I think Mary's response shows us that. She pondered. She thought about what this meant. Um, Secondly, you and I are favored because God shows us unmerited favor. I think it's really important for us to notice why did God choose Mary? Um, I don't think that Mary was favored in the sense that God looked and saw, hey, there's a holy, righteous, pious, perfect person. You're sinless and perfect, and therefore I can use you. I I believe Mary was favored because God showed her favor. And so I, I think the same applies to anyone who responds to the gospel and to God's calling on them. God did not send his son. God didn't give us salvation, forgiveness of sins, redemption, because he looked through the halls of time, so to speak, and he saw really, really good, decent, stand-up people who said they deserve salvation. There's some theologians that think that. Well, God looked through the halls of time and he said, well, uh, Jeremiah's pretty good, Andrew's pretty good, Graham's pretty good. I'll give them salvation based on how good of a person they are. That's just so not true. God did not send his son because we were really good and we deserved it. The Bible is actually abundantly clear that we as human beings are enemies of God. We are called in Ephesians 2, children of wrath. We're told in Jeremiah 17 that our hearts are deceptively wicked. Romans 3, Paul in Romans 1, 2, and 3, he's been building this case that the Jews aren't saved by their good works. No one is good. In Romans 3.10, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, it's bleak. It's a bleak situation that humanity is in. And so when you think of our salvation, what God has done for you, how he saved you, Please do not think it's because somehow you earned it or deserved it. Or that you were good enough. The whole point of God's mercy and grace is that it's unmerited. I mean, really, if you think about the weight, and this will lead into our, our last point, 
But the weight of the gospel, if it's really because, okay, well, I'm a pretty decent person, I'm pretty good, yeah, I have a little bit of sin and stuff in my life, and then Jesus came and he just kind of fixes me up a little bit, and he, he came because I deserved it and I'm good, and he just kind of deals with a few, few things that are a little bit off. Well, then the gospel is like, it's not really good news, it's a good suggestion, but the gospel is good news because we don't deserve it. That we're enemies of God and yet he looked on us with love and he said, I'm going to send my son for them. Even though there's no one righteous, no not one, everyone has turned away from me, I'm still going to send my son to save them. God chose Mary solely because of his mercy and grace. In his sovereign plan, he chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus And I think in the same way, our salvation is given to us, not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, not because God sees something in us that's really good. No, we're enemies of God, and God still chose to offer us salvation. And so then lastly, knowing that, it affects our response to the gospel. We respond in the same way that Mary did. She said humbly after all of the, that was told her, she said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Literally, I am the slave of God, bond servant, a slave. And we don't use language like that in our day and age, but Mary said, behold, I am the slave of God. I think if we misunderstand the gospel, then we, we don't respond like Mary does. And here's what I mean. I think if we really do view humanity as basically good, we're all really good people, we have a few sin mistake problems, and then we offer Jesus to people, and then, and then it's kind of like this, well, just try Jesus out to see if he helps your problems. Try See if Jesus can help fix up your life. See if he works for you. Um, I remember in youth group um, every year, we did a, a video series called Quest, um, and it was put on by, uh, I think it was connected to Alpha Canada and things like that, but the youth version of it. And so every year it was, hey, invite your friends, your lost friends. We're going to do this six-week series called Quest, and it's basically apologetics and, and why you should be a Christian. And so I remember that uh, you, would, you were supposed to invite your lost friends, and then there were, you know, fun, edgy. And now, looking back, it's so cheesy now. But it was in the 90s, and uh, he travels around the world, and he interviews people, and then he tries to teach the gospel a little bit. I remember near the end, so week five or six, um, <clears throat> the host talked about Pascal's wager. Now, some of you may not know what that is, but Pascal's wager was this idea, this philosopher um, he said, okay, so let's, let's talk about Jesus in heaven. So here is Pascal's uh, wager. Um, if you believe in Jesus and heaven is real, if it's all real, then you've gained everything. And if you believe in Jesus and heaven is not real, then you've really lost nothing, right? And on the flip side, if you don't believe in Jesus and heaven isn't real, well, you still, you've lost nothing. But if you don't believe in Jesus and heaven is real, man, you've lost everything. And so it was presented as, so you should just try Jesus. Because if he's not real, you don't lose anything, right? 
So just now bow your heads and say this prayer, and yeah, you all became Christians because it's like, well, okay, I guess I'll roll the dice on Jesus. But I remember sitting there going, something seems off here, right? It's just, okay, maybe Jesus isn't real, but if he is real, you don't want to lose out on that, right? So you might as well just say the prayer and become a Christian. Listen, Christianity is not like signing up for a gym. It's not a live well program. Just try it for a little bit, right? Christianity is not a vendor of spiritual services until you get tired of, of it and you go try something else that works. Christianity is surrender. It's becoming a slave of Jesus. It's saying, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be so. Right, so, but if you view, if you view the gospel as, I'm pretty much a good person, I just have to kind of fix my life, then you will view Christianity as, well, it's just a get better program. Try it out. See if it works. And then people walk away from the faith because they go, ah, it didn't really work for me. Christianity, if, if you are an enemy of God, headed for a godless, Christless eternity, and the God of the universe shows unmerited favor and grace and says, I am going to call you and make you one of my own. The only response is, but I am a slave of Jesus. Let it be so. And so what it is, it's wrestling through the truth of the gospel, God opening your eyes that this is true, and then it's realizing the unmerited, undeserved grace of Jesus through his substitutionary death for you, and it's realizing that and then surrendering your life to him because you go, if Jesus is true, what other choice do I have? If he actually died for me, then I must surrender to him. I owe my life to him. Regardless of what comes my way, I I must be a servant of the Lord. So my hope for us is that we, at this time of year, would just be blown away by the incarnation of Jesus. Why I often, as I think about my own heart and my own depravity and my own sinfulness, I often say, Jesus, why would you do this for me? Like, I, I so do not deserve this, God. Why, God, would you show your love and grace and mercy towards someone like me? I think that's actually a really good place to be. To not go, I must be pretty great that Jesus died for me. But to go, oh, oh God, why would you do this for me? I so do not deserve this. And that, if that is our, our vantage point of the gospel, this unmerited favor and grace... My prayer is that we would all respond like Mary. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Regardless of what that means for my life, regardless if I lose out on, you know, money and power and family and friends and my job, if the gospel is true, I am a servant of the Lord. That that would be our response. So Jesus, I just thank you uh, for this amazing passage. Um, God, I thank you that it's so like you to choose the most unassuming city in, in the least flashiest region and choosing the most unlikely person to bring about your son into the world. 
I think it, it just reminds me in, in 1 Corinthians when Paul says that you chose what is low and foolish to shame the wisdom of the world. And so God, I pray that we <clears throat> would have an accurate biblical view of the gospel that humanity, because of our willing choice, um, we are all born children of wrath, enemies of God, stuck in sin and depravity and wickedness, and yet, God, in the midst of that, you looked at humanity, and you had every right to say, I'm not offering grace to anyone, and yet you looked on us with love, complete, unconditional love, that you would look on us and say, I, I want those people in my family. I'm going to send my own son to die a brutal death so that these people can be saved. Um, Jesus, if, if the gospel is true, then our only response must be, I am a servant of the Lord. It's not a get better program. It's not a try it out for a little while. It's literally, I'm going from being a slave to darkness and sin, and Jesus has set me free, and now I am a slave to Jesus. He is my master. I pray that we would have that kind of mindset um, and, and even at this time of year, as we remember why you came, I pray that that would be our response. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. So just do that work in our hearts, Jesus. Um, you are the one that has to change our hearts and our minds, and so we ask that you would do so. And so I just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.